a book that is interesting for the very fact that God is never mentioned, but I think that in our world we can appreciate that it doesn't matter whether people mention God. He is always there, whether it be the darkest or most secular place that exists, such as the courts of a king of Persia some 2,500 or so years ago, or whether it be some modern place that has shunned faith or thrown it out, just because God is not mentioned does not mean that God is not there. And that's a good reminder for us as we read that even as this scripture does not mention God, yet God is seen everywhere in it. So Esther is this story, it's written about God's people in their exile or after the exile, those that lived in foreign nations, probably dated somewhere 4 to 500 BC, and it's a story, it's a story about an intercessor or maybe a need for intercession that exists for God's people. It's a story about God's sovereignty. And it begins with the king throwing a big feast. And he has all of his generals and nobles, and historians say he's probably throwing a feast to get all of his generals excited about going to invade Greece. And so he has this six-month-long feast, and he's decreeing everybody should drink as much as they want, eat as much as they want, have as much fun as they want. And the idea hits him, probably after he's had a few too many, Ah, I should call the queen in so that everyone could admire how beautiful she is. And the queen has the audacity to refuse God. Now, that seems like a strong statement. Well, it's just the king, but they thought the king was a god. Like, everything he said was like a decree. It was true just because he said it. And so, in all worlds and places, if you don't have the true god, you make gods and you give them authority. Such was the king. And so when the person who is the God of the culture says something and the people don't obey, you have just generated a crisis. What do you do? And so the queen is banished. And probably the king doesn't think much about the fact he banished the queen because he goes off to war for five years. And it doesn't go so well and he comes back and he's kind of, you know, not so happy. And if the king who makes all of the decrees and chops heads and whatever else isn't happy, nobody's happy. And so his advisors say we need to have a beauty contest in order to find a new queen. This will please the king. It will take his mind off of other matters. And so they have this contest, and who is chosen to be the queen but Esther, who has hidden her identity as a Jew, as one of God's people. Well, so we now got a queen, and... Here comes along a guy named Haman, an Agagite who has a long history. The history goes about 800 years back of his people um, being enemies of God's people. And he wants the Jews wiped out. And he's, you know, making himself a great friend of the king. And the king is just like, oh, whatever you want to do. You know, here's my ring. Make whatever decrees you want. And so Haman decrees that at a certain day, as he's cast the lots, the Jews are to be destroyed and wiped out. And as the city goes into uproar at such a random and, quite frankly, evil decree, what does the king do? Well, he and Haman sit down, and as I jokingly said with that sermon, they said, 
bring me a beer. The world's in chaos. We've just made people wonder what on earth is the king doing, decreeing the death of an entire group of people, and we'll sit down to drink. Well, Mordecai, who's the other character in the story, um, he is Esther's uncle, and he sends word to Esther, or he tries to send word, and the word that Esther gets is, oh, and she doesn't even know about this. Our people have been set aside for destruction. And so Esther says, well, I can't just go to the king. I mean, the king is surrounded with guys with sharp swords and with axes. And the rule is, if the king doesn't want you there, if you haven't been called, unless he holds out his golden scepter, there's the guy right there that just goes, whack! And that's the end of you. And that's the policy. The policy is kill them and ask questions later. And so there's kind of a sense of, how do I go to the king? I might die. There's a chance that he'll see me and hopefully he won't kill me, but this is the way that these things work. Well, so Esther says to Mordecai, get everyone and have everyone fast and everyone pray. And chapter 4 ends with that sense of she is saying, I am going to leave my life in the hands of the king. So in some sense, a physical, there's a real sense she was leaving her life in the hands of the king as she was going to go into his presence and hope to live to see the end of that day. But also she was leaving her life in the hands of the king and that she was leaving it in God's hands as to what God would do. And it wasn't a sense that she was saying, if I perish, I perish, like, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. But if I perish, that was what, what God had for me. But maybe, maybe I have this position to intercede for my people. Maybe I've been put in this place for such a time as this. So that's the first four chapters, which brings us to chapter five, which is... As they would say, um, it's zero hour at the palace. It's time for Esther to go. So let, let me pray for us that God would use his word, and then let's jump in. God, we pray that you would make your word live for us, um, that you would help us to, to see clearly your grace and mercy and the way that you work through it. Um, and help us to know your, your presence. And we pray that your spirit would be here to minister to us and to enable us to see the truth here. Um, I pray that if anything I say is not accurate to your word, that it would be forgotten and all that is, all that is true and right and glorious and um, for your glory, that we would remember it and live it out for your glory. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. So I want to do something a little different this morning. I want to introduce a a, a theme, and then I want to just kind of work through the text a little bit, just one scene of the story at a time, and then after that we'll make some uh, applications and observations. So what I want to introduce for us this morning is the idea of someone to speak for you. 
And I don't know how many of you have ever been in a situation in life. I expect most of you have been in a situation where you needed someone to speak for you. Maybe there was a situation where somebody had wrongfully accused you of doing wrong, or maybe there was a situation where um, you weren't sure what to do, or maybe there was a situation where you'd really blown it. You'd really messed it up, and somebody came and said, hey, I'm going to stand with you and stand for you, and I'm going to be with you through this situation so I can see you through to the other side of it. And certainly all of those things or scenarios are where you need Jesus. You need Jesus to speak for you, to intercede for you. And sometimes there are people that God raises up to intercede. And I could think of various scenarios where intercession is necessary. If somebody, and you know, from the educational realm, if there's a kid being bullied on the playground, somebody else should intercede for them. Ideally, somebody with power and authority should intercede for them. A teacher, a school administrator, a peer, somebody gets in there and says, no, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I need to speak to somebody in authority. I need to get this situation dealt with. So I want you to appreciate for a minute the challenge that Esther faces is that God's people need an intercessor. And each of us shares that common ground with Esther that shares that common ground that certainly we can't simply save ourselves, but we can be intercessors. Our role as Christians is to be intercessors, to intercede for the people around us. If you're a parent, intercede for your children. Pray for them, for your children, for your grandchildren. Um, If you're married, intercede for your spouse, that they would be godly, that God would keep them from sin. All of us has the opportunity to be an intercessor, and as we model that or do that, we are, a, we are modeling what Jesus does for us, that he intercedes for us. So really, Esther and our story in front of us is a story of intercession. And as the story of intercession begins... We have scene one, which is the first four verses. Let me read them for us. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. So here's scene one. Esther shows up, and her head is not chopped. And I want you to appreciate that there have been a whole army of people interceding for her before she even got there. And you need an army of people that intercede for you when you're needing to intercede on your behalf or someone else's behalf or even before the Lord. Get everybody on board and say, hey, we need to intercede. So she shows up, and I want you to appreciate that 
Esther has plenty of passion. I mean, just as if your head were on the line and you, your death had been decreed for you. I mean, nothing is a greater cause than your life and the life of your people, right? I mean, there'd be a sense that if a decree came down against the people of Grace Covenant and one of us was going to go before the governor and try and intercede, like everybody would be like, this is our collective concern. So everybody's praying for Esther. She shows up, and the first sign of God's providence and God's sovereignty and God's answering her prayer is that the king looks on her and sees her with favor. Now, I always tell my students that um, the writers of the Bible don't put things in there for no reason. They need to mean something. If you're writing a story and you put in details, the details need to mean something. And so we notice that Esther shows up in her royal garb, her queen's outfit. And I don't know what all that was, but probably really fancy and rich robes meant to show splendor. But also it was meant to show that I'm here for business. Like she wasn't showing up in, um, you know, everyday jeans and a t-shirt. Like I am here to do the business of the kingdom is what is being communicated. And I have to think that Esther thought through that it would be really bad press in the city to have, you know, people walk by and see the queen in her royal robes having had her head chopped. So, I mean, there is a sense that wisdom is needed when you are going to intercede. There can be a problem that sometimes we have plenty of zeal and we lack wisdom. Maybe you've been in that place in your life where you... The cause is right. You're sure the cause is right, and you're going for it. And sometimes in the process of going for the cause that you know is right, you end up actually damaging your reputation and damaging the cause that you're a part of because you roll over people or you treat them in a condescending or a disrespectful way. And so Esther is acting with wisdom as she comes before the king. She's thought through what she's going to do. Now, she receives favor from the king, and the king says, what do you want? And, of course, again, you can appreciate that if this were you or me, you'd be like, yes, I'm not dead. The king just told me he'd give me anything I wanted, up to half the kingdom. This is great. And, of course, that's a figure of speech. He wasn't planning to give her half the kingdom. It's just kind of like saying, whatever you want. Like, just want to make sure that no request that you make will be too big and too significant. Now, Esther actually has a really big ask. Because it's sort of like, the, the, the analogy would be that the king was a god, right? And so if you're coming to someone who is the authority who is in charge, who is seen as a god in the culture and in the world that they live in, and you're about to tell them that they've done something wrong and you want them to reverse it? This is not a small ask that she has. This is just not a a, a little, oh, it's of no matter to you, O king. It's of great matter. And actually, the king's reputation is on the line. What will people think? If the king says one thing and then is, is able to be argued out of it, he's, he's supposed to have authority. 
I was reminded of this um, uh, a week ago. I'm at a volleyball game, and the referee makes a bad call. And some of the players made known to the referee the call was bad. And the referee said, well, the call stands. Because if you can argue with the referee about every call and they can reverse it, guess what ends up happening? The referee has a miserable job because everyone argues everything, right? So you can just think of that picture. Like, she has a big ask, and so she wants to set it up. Sometimes you need to set things up. You need to be deliberate. You need to be thoughtful. You need to have wisdom. And so she wants to set up her intercession so that the king will actually hear it. So that he'll be in a place not just, oh, the queen's here, how nice, she must need something, sure, why not? But actually, she wants to pull him in. And so she says, come to dinner. And the king, I mean, has got to be just like, come to dinner? Are you kidding me? Nobody risks having their head chopped for a dinner invitation. But we also know this king likes big feasts. And if there's one thing, it's to throw a feast in your honor. But how about someone else throwing a feast in your honor? That's even better. So, there's scene one. We come to scene number two, which begins in verse five. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly. Let's not waste any time so that we may do as Esther asked. So the king and Haman come to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I'll do as the king has asked. All right, so scene two. At the queen's banquet, they've eaten all the food and they're consuming wine and the king is probably relaxed and he's just like, this is really nice, but I'm still really curious. Like, I I need to know. And Haman is there with him and Haman is just sitting there thinking to himself, this is one sweet gig. Like, I am at the top of the pile here. Like, I'm the only other person invited. And the king and Haman are oblivious as to what is going on. It seems very clear that they're oblivious as to what is going on in front of them. So there's scene two. Esther says, nah, we we haven't, I mean, you can think if you're a writer, right? We haven't built enough tension into the story to reach the resolution. We 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 need to draw them in even further. Like, we don't want the king and Haman all into the trap. Like, we want them more than that. The king seems all in, but let's pull it along a little further. So there is scene two. Then we have scene three. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and he brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, 
all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above all officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. In the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hung on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So there's a saying that you can never be so on top of the world that there can't be something that's better. And so here's Haman at the top of the world, walking out of the queen's banquet. All of his power, all of his glory. And then there's that fly in the ointment. That Mordecai. That nasty guy that won't give me the respect that I am due. What am I going to do about him? How am I going to deal with him? How can I stomp that fly? And the text kind of gives us this sense that it takes all of his self-control that he has, every ounce of it, to just not go and wring his neck at that moment. But Haman understands that you still have to have the king's permission. Like, the king's still in charge. I'm maybe almost at the top, but I can't wring the guy's neck until I have the king's permission. And so he goes home and... You know, the, the rage that this man has, and sometimes success, in our world you'd think that success would make you um, happier. In Haman's case, success simply makes him more hungry to use power. The more power he accumulates, the more he wants to use it. And the more angry that he ha- anger that he has towards people who stand in the way of his power being absolute. And maybe you might think in our world, there's a, a saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Haman has been corrupted by one layer of power and wealth and success after the next. I appreciate uh, Tim Keller commented at one time that there are two things that commonly ruin people. One is poverty and the other is wealth, and it's far easier to survive poverty than wealth. And so here is Haman. And so in his rage, and this is just a really interesting idea, he calls all of his family and his wife together. And you can just imagine they're sitting there, I mean, and he's giving this lecture to them about how great he is. I don't know how many of you have sat through people lecturing about how great they are, but it's not that great to be sitting there listening to that. And so at the end of it, you know, his wife, being an insightful person, says, well, why don't you just get this guy taken care of? Um, Set up a gallows, 50 cubits, probably about 75 feet, you know, Um, so, I mean, think of maybe the, the front of Grace Covenant, uh, the church here. I mean, it's higher than that. And so this is sort of, not only do you want to kill someone, but you want to make sure everyone knows. Like, um, you want, when people look out of their houses at the skyline, you want them to see the guy hanging. 
because it'll make the point. Don't mess with Haman. And sometimes in our world, we have that same sort of thing that goes on, right? I am going to make an example out of this person so that people won't mess with me. And sometimes injustice is done frequently in that name, that we're going to not give justice to the situation, but in fact, we're going to be, go beyond what is just and right because we want to make an example out of this person. And so Haman is not content to simply, hey, we're going to kill my enemy. It has to be that everyone will know so it will increase my power and my authority so that nobody will cross me. And so the plan is set. And as the night goes on, the, the gallows are constructed. One board, one plank, one at a time, so that in the morning it will be ready. So next week we'll see what happens. But in the meantime, I want us to appreciate in this story that the characters, they don't know what they don't know. Only God is sovereign. Only God is sovereign and only somebody that, that knows can intercede. And in some sense, Esther is the person who knows the most in the story. She, she knows who God is. She knows that her life is in God's hands. She has thought through and sought wisdom and prayer, and she knows what she's trying to do and what she's trying to accomplish. She, she knows. But she doesn't know as much as God does. She cannot work in other people's hearts and lives she cannot make everything turn out okay. And I think one of the first lessons that needs to be learned for us as people is that God is sovereign and we are not. And no matter how much wisdom that we have, our wisdom is dependent upon God for, it to be, for our plans to be accomplished. It's not wrong to make plans. Esther clearly has a plan. Godly people make plans. Godly people are not impulsive. They don't just jump in and do things without considering what God has to say, without prayer, without bringing along the community with them. Like there's a sense that as godly people, we need to recognize it's right to make plans and it is right to seek the Lord regarding the plans that we make. And so whatever place you are in life, it's right to make plans. If you're thinking about college, it's right to think through, hey, where do I want to go? What are my plans for that? If you're thinking about relationships, it's right to think, should I date this person? Should I marry them? What does the Lord have for this? Um, seeking people's uh, wisdom, prayer, all those sorts of things, it is right to do that. And godly people do that. Does that guarantee an outcome? We're left in the middle of the story, and all of our lives are in the middle of the story. We don't know the future of what God is going to, in his sovereignty, work out and make happen. And some of the best laid plans of men, even that seem to be very godly plans, crash and burn. 
And so it's very important, just because things crash and burn doesn't mean a person wasn't godly in making their plans. It doesn't mean that even that they were wise. It simply meant that the, the king, not simply the earthly king, but the heavenly king, had something else that he was wanting to do. And so we appreciate, even as we look at Esther, there is that sense of you submit to God's sovereignty all of your plans. You seek to do them with wisdom, with godliness, with community, but you seek to do those in a way that honor the Lord. We then see in our story the king. Now the king, he doesn't know much at all. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. And part of that is his own fault. He should have paid attention to what Haman was doing when he was making decrees to destroy complete groups of people. Like, he should have known. And there's no excuse for ignorance. Christians should not be ignorant about God's word and what God would have them to do in service in his kingdom. And it is to the great loss of the church that every successive generation has less Bible knowledge. There's a sense of, you wonder, like as you look at the trends and the way that surveys play this out, you wonder, how ignorant can we be and still be Christian? (laughs) There's a sense that we need to know God's word. We need to have it before us. And this king, who doesn't care to know and is unconcerned, is in a really bad spot because of it. And sometimes in our world, when we look at those that lead us or people in our communities that don't know the Lord or even Christians that don't know his word, we get into places that are really dark. Why? Because we didn't take the time and didn't make it a deliberate effort that we're going to know God's word. We're going to know what's going on in God's world Um, And we're going to seek to intercede and to know and to act. So the king, he doesn't know what he doesn't know. And part of that is going to make the revelation of the truth especially shocking to him. And then there's Haman. And if the king is ignorant, then Haman is the most ignorant of all. And that isn't because he doesn't have a plan or a scheme or a thought or a way that he wants to make things happen. He has all of those things. He is a planner, and he's been playing his cards to get power for years. But he has made the mistake of believing that he holds all the cards. And people in our world make that mistake too. Christians and even godly people make the mistake of thinking, I hold the cards. Through my knowledge, through my power, I will control it all. I think the most common, the most common area of this is Christian parents believe that if I follow the right formula, my children will love Jesus automatically. And there's that sense of, I will be able to control all of the parameters, and as I control everything, I will make sure that everything goes right. And I'll have the guarantee that everything will turn out the way I want it to. And the cards are played, and not everything is perfect, and not everything is right. And there's that sense of, well, where is God? Well, he's on the throne just as he always has been. And what was I trying to do? 
I was trying to be God. Rather than saying, my children belong to God, Lord, would you help me to disciple them? I was saying, my children belong to me, and I will determine what happens with their life. This happens in, in careers. When you think about careers or retirement or whatever else, we make plans, and we're sure that we're going to do them. We're sure that we have the means to carry them out. And then God throws in a sickness, or God throws in a layoff, or um, God throws in something that just blows that up in our lives, and we think, well, wait a minute, why is that so? And often, the best technique that God has in order to get our attention is to say, I'm going to take that well-laid plan that you have, and I am just going to blow it up so that you can see that my plan is different. And that's the comfort that Christians have. That when our best laid plans blow up, we can trust that God has a different plan. But if you have spurned belief, if you have no faith, as Haman does, it's all you. And the chapter ends on that note of Haman saying, Oh, that final fly in the ointment. It's about to be done with, and happiness and joy and fulfillment and the pinnacle of human accomplishment are there for me. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. And that's the way it is in the world. I'm reminded of the song from The Greatest Showman, Never, never, never enough. That's what our world tells us things you have, the power you have, the health you have, the success you have, it's never, it's never enough. And I want us for a moment to appreciate that that's true. It's never enough. It will never be enough. It will never be enough for that day of judgment where we stand before God Everything that we bring will be nothing and will be worthless. And our only hope will be is if there is an intercessor that goes before the king on our behalf. An intercessor that is successful before the king on our behalf. And the worst mistake that a Christian can ever make is to think that I can do this or I've got this. Nobody's got it on the day of judgment. Nobody has enough. And not only there, but we don't have enough today. You don't have enough to face the challenges that are in front of you. That's why you need someone to speak for you. That's why you need Jesus. That's why you need to go to Jesus on each other's behalf. Because you need someone to speak for you. So I want to simply leave us this morning in the middle of the story, but I want you to appreciate that Esther is doing what godly people do and have done throughout time. She has identified a time and a place where God has put her, where she can stand and intercede on behalf of her people. And we need to identify that God has placed us where we are to intercede for our families, for our church, for our communities, for our nation, and for our world. And we, we go modeling the gospel and modeling Jesus 
what Jesus does for us when we intercede on each other's behalf, on behalf of our world. And that is what God calls us to do, even as we fully rely not on our strength, but as we intercede in Jesus' name, and as he effectively intercedes for our preservation and our salvation. Let's pray. God and Father, thank you so much for your word, and I pray that you would use it and you would apply it to our lives as we each have individual need. Thank you that Jesus intercedes for us, and we pray in his name. Amen. In response to God's word, let's turn to hymn number 94, How Firm a Foundation. It's also up on the screen. You saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with you, oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God, and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow. For I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall go, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. E'en down to old age, all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And when hoary hair shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. A soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his post. That soul, though all hell shall endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. 
So as you go out to serve the Lord this week, I want you to look at the world that you live in and ask the Lord to put on your heart where is, where is a place or a person or a situation that you are going to intercede before the Lord's throne for. And what are actions that God would take you to say, hey, here's a place where I can take my faith and I can go out and I can intercede for others that really need someone to speak for them. And then just would encourage you, bring each other before the throne of grace. Bring your families. We need an intercessor and thank the Lord that Jesus comes and intercedes for us. As you go out into the world, you do not go out as people who are alone, but you have the Lord's presence with you, and you're also part of the Christian community. Um, and so go now with the Lord's blessings. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And may the Lord give you his peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.